We're here to mark that day in history when the Allied armies joined in battle to reclaim this continent to liberty. For four long years, much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved, and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here, the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely, windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs, shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades. And the American rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. And behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. And these are the heroes who helped end a war. Gentlemen, I look at you and I think of the words of Stephen Spender's poem. You were men who in your, quote, lives fought for life and lift, left the vivid air signed with your honor. I think I know what you may be thinking right now, thinking we were just part of a bigger effort. Everyone was brave that day. Well, everyone was. Do you remember the story of Bill Millen of the 51st Highlanders? Forty years ago today, British troops were pinned down near a bridge waiting desperately for help. Suddenly they heard the sound of bagpipes, and some thought they were dreaming. Well, they weren't. They looked up and saw Bill Millen with his bagpipes leading the reinforcements and ignoring the smack of the bullets into the ground around him. Lord Lovett was with him, Lord Lovett of Scotland, who calmly announced when he got to the bridge, Sorry, I'm a few minutes late, as if he'd been delayed by a traffic jam when in truth he'd just come from the bloody fighting on Sword Beach, which he and his men had just taken. There was the impossible valor of the Poles, 
who threw themselves between the enemy and the rest of Europe as the invasion took hold, and the unsurpassed courage of the Canadians who had already seen the horrors of war on this coast. They knew what awaited them there, but they would not be deterred. And once they hit Juneau Beach, they never looked back. All of these men were part of a roll call of honor with names that spoke of a pride as bright as the colors they bore. The Royal Winnipeg Rifles, Poland's 24th Lancers, the Royal Scots Fusiliers, the Screaming Eagles, the Yeomen of England's Armored Divisions, the forces of Free France, the Coast Guard's Matchbox Fleet, and you, the American Rangers. Forty summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? Well, what impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right, faith that they fought for all humanity, faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. It was the deep knowledge, and pray God we have not lost it, that there is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. You were here to liberate, not to conquer, and so you and those others did not doubt your cause, and you were right not to doubt. You all knew that some things are worth dying for. One's country is worth dying for, and democracy is worth dying for because it's the most deeply honorable form of government ever devised by man. All of you loved liberty. All of you were willing to fight tyranny. And you knew the people of your countries were behind you. The Americans who fought here that morning knew word of the invasion was spreading through the darkness back home. They fought or felt in their hearts, though they couldn't know in fact, that in Georgia, they were filling the churches at 4 a.m. In Kansas, they were kneeling on their porches and praying. And in Philadelphia, they were ringing the Liberty Bell. Something else helped the men of D-Day. Their rock-hard belief that Providence would have a great hand in the events that would unfold here. That God was an ally in this great cause. And so, the night before the invasion, when Colonel Wolverton asked his parachute troops to kneel with him in prayer, he told them, do not bow your heads, but look up so you can see God and ask his blessing in what we are about to do. Also that night, General Matthew Ridgway on his cot, listening in the darkness for the promise God made to Joshua, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. These are the things that impelled them. These are the things that shaped the unity of the Allies. When the war was over, there were lives to be rebuilt and governments to be returned to the people. There were nations to be reborn. Above all, 
there was a new peace to be assured. These were huge and daunting tasks, but the Allies summoned strength from the faith, belief, loyalty, and love of those who fell here. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. On June 6, 1984, 40 years to the day that the United States and its allies stormed the coast of Normandy to free France from brutal German occupation, then-President Ronald Reagan offered his tribute to the men of the U.S. Army's 2nd Ranger Battalion, which he called the Boys of Pointe-du-Ac, as well as all others who took place in the assault, for their sacrifice on that day and in the days, weeks, and months beyond as they fought and bled and died to secure the freedoms of others far beyond their own shores. Their sacrifices and courage in 1944 will never be forgotten by those Americans who understand what freedom costs. Those enjoying the peace and prosperity of this country who do not understand and appreciate these sacrifices, and that number is growing rapidly, make a good case for mandatory two-year service in our military. The most dramatic and deadly event of D-Day, and there were many, occurred as the Army Ranger 2nd Battalion, consisting of 200 specially trained and equipped soldiers, stepped off their landing crafts under blistering fire, waded to the beach, and with grappling hooks fired by launchers, proceeded to climb the 100-foot sheer cliffs of Pont du Ac as German soldiers poured rifle fire and lobbed grenades down onto them from the clifftop. By D-plus-2, only 90 of the 200 rangers from the 2nd Battalion could still carry a weapon, and their job was just beginning. Today, we tell their story. The site that Reagan chose to give his legendary speech was the 30.5-acre Pointe-du-Ac Ranger Memorial, located at the site of the battle, eight road miles west of Normandy American Cemetery, where 9,300 Americans who died in the invasion are buried. It was here at Pointe-du-Ac that Colonel Earl Rudder's 2nd Ranger Battalion scaled the 100-foot cliffs on D-Day morning, 6th of June, 1944, to seize the fortified enemy position which controlled the landing approaches to Omaha, and Utah beaches. What brought them here to this place? After World War II was initiated by the Germans in 1939 with the German invasion of Poland, Germany invaded and occupied northwestern France in May of 1940. The Americans entered the war in December of 1941 after being attacked at Pearl Harbor by the Japanese, who were allied with Germany, the alliance known as the Axis Powers. By 1942, the Americans and the British, who had been evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk in May of 1940, after being cut off by the Germans in the Battle of France, were considering the possibility of a major Allied invasion across the English Channel. The following year, Allied plans for a cross-channel invasion began to ramp up. In November of 1943, Adolf Hitler, who was aware of the threat of an invasion along France's northern coast, put Erwin Rommel in charge of spearheading defense operations in the region, even though the Germans did not know exactly where the Allies would strike. Hitler charged Rommel with finishing the Atlantic Wall, a 2,400-mile fortification of bunkers, landmines, and beach and water obstacles. In January of 1944, General Dwight Eisenhower was appointed commander of Operation Overlord to free occupied France. In the months and weeks before D-Day, the Allies carried out a massive deception operation intended to make the Germans think the main invasion target was Pas-de-Calais, the narrowest point between Britain and France. 
rather than Normandy. In addition, they led the Germans to believe that Norway and other locations were also potential invasion targets. Many tactics were used to carry out the deception, including fake equipment. A phantom army commanded by George Patton and supposedly based in England, across from Potty Calais, double agents, and fraudulent radio transmissions. On the morning of June 5th, after his meteorologist predicted improved conditions for the following day, Eisenhower gave the go-ahead for Operation Overlord. He told the troops, You are about to embark upon the great crusade, toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Later that day, more than 5,000 ships and landing craft carrying troops and supplies left England for the trip across the Channel to France, while more than 11,000 aircraft were mobilized to provide air cover and support for the invasion. By dawn on June 6th, thousands of paratroopers and glider troops were already on the ground behind enemy lines, securing bridges and exit roads. The amphibious invasions began at 6.30 a.m., the British and Canadians overcame light opposition to capture beaches codenamed Gold, Juno, and Sword Beach, as did the Americans at Utah Beach. U.S. forces faced heavy resistance at Omaha Beach, where there were over 2,000 American casualties. The movie Saving Private Ryan showed a depiction of the Omaha Beach landings. By day's end, approximately 156,000 Allied troops had successfully stormed Normandy's beaches. According to some estimates, more than 4,000 Allied troops lost their lives in the D-Day invasion, with thousands more wounded or missing. Many more American lives were to be sacrificed in the days, weeks, and months to come. Less than a week after D-Day, on June 11th, the beaches were fully secured and over 326,000 troops, more than 50,000 vehicles, and some 100,000 tons of equipment had landed at Normandy all at a terrible cost of men who knew that the survival of the free world was at stake, men who would continue to fight the Germans all the way to Berlin. For their part, the Germans suffered from confusion in the ranks and the absence of their celebrated commander Rommel, who was away on leave. At first, Hitler, believing the invasion was a feint designed to distract the Germans from a coming attack north of the Seine River, refused to release nearby divisions to join the counterattack. Reinforcements had to be called from further afield, causing delays. He also hesitated in calling for armored divisions to help in the defense. Moreover, the Germans were hampered by effective Allied air support, which took out many key bridges and forced the Germans to take long detours, as well as efficient Allied naval support, which helped protect advancing Allied troops. One reason that Allied air support was possible was that the Brits had decimated the German Luftwaffe in three years of fighting, suffering a staggering loss of pilots and planes. On June 6, 1944, the fate of Europe rested in the hands of the young men of the Allied forces, American, British, Canadian, Australian, French, and others, who, facing horrendous odds against a well-fortified, well-armed, and determined enemy, stormed the beaches of France. The following communique has just been issued by Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied Naval Forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. On June 6, 1944, the Fifth Corps of the U.S. First Army assaulted German coastal defenses on a 6,000-yard stretch called 
Omaha Beach between Vierville and Collaville. Their aim was to establish, on D-Day, a beachhead of three to four miles deep, extending from the Drome River to the vicinity of Assigny. The attack was made by two divisions, the 1st and the 29th, with strong attachments of armor and artillery. On their right flank, a separate mission of unusual difficulty, Pointe du Ac, was assigned to a special assault force. According to us.mil.com special units, Pointe du Ac operations, the position at Pointe du Ac was strongly protected from attack by sea. Between Grand Camp and the Omaha sector, the flat Norman tableland terminated abruptly in rocky cliffs. At Pointe du Ac, these cliffs were 85 to 100 feet high, sheer to overhanging. Below them was a narrow strip of beach without the slightest cover for assaulting troops. Aerial photographs indicated what was later confirmed by French civilians, that the enemy regarded the position as nearly impregnable from seaward attack and were more concerned with defending it against an enemy coming from inland. The battery was part of a self-contained fortress area, mined and wired on the landward side. Its flanks were protected by two supporting smaller positions mounting machine guns and, on the west, an anti-aircraft gun. These positions were sighted to put enfilade fire on the beaches under the point and to aid its defense against any inland attack. Enemy troops at Pointe du Ac were estimated at 125 infantry and 85 artillerymen, extremely well fortified in concrete bunkers included in the sector of enemy coastal defenses from the Vire to the Orne, held by the 716th German Infantry Division. The three Army Ranger companies, each company averaging about 65 men, selected for the mission at Pointe du Ac, had received intensive training and had developed special equipment for the operation. During April and May, at Swanage on the Isle of Wight, the personnel had been conditioned by hard practice in rope and ladder work on cliffs, like those of the French coast, combined with landing exercises in difficult waters. Personnel of British commando units gave all possible help based on their experience with coastal raids. As a result of experiment with all types of equipment for Escalade, main reliance was placed on ropes to be carried over the clifftops by rockets. In addition, the assault wave would take along extension ladders. British landing craft, known as LCAs, with British crews, were used both in the training and in the actual operation. Ten LCAs would be sufficient to boat the three small ranger companies and headquarters party, including signal and medical personnel, with an average of 21 to 22 men on a craft. Each LCA was fitted with three pairs of rocket mounts at bow, amidship, and stern, wired so that they could be fired in series of pairs from one control point at the stern. Plain H-inch ropes were carried by one pair of rockets, affixed to the rocket's base by a connecting wire. A second pair was rigged for rope of the same size fitted with toggles, small wooden crossbars a few inches long inserted at about one-foot intervals. A third pair of rockets was attached to light rope ladders with rungs every two feet. The rockets were headed by grapnels. The rope or ladder for each rocket was coiled in a box directly behind the rocket mount. Each craft carried, in addition to the six mounted rockets, a pair of small hand projector type rockets attached to plain ropes. These could be easily carried ashore if necessary. The movie The Longest Day recalls with accuracy the use of rope ladders by the Army Rangers at Pointe du Ac. Extension ladders were of two types. One carried by each LCA consisted of 112 feet of tubular steel, four, four foot sections weighing four pounds each. These ladders were partly assembled in advance in 16-foot lengths. 
For mounting the whole ladder in Escalade work, a man would climb to the top of a length, haul up and attach the next 16-foot section, and repeat this process until the necessary height was reached. As a final auxiliary for climbing, four ladder-equipped crews would come in close behind the first wave, each carrying a 100-foot extension ladder, fire department type, with three folding sections. Two Lewis machine guns were mounted at the top of each of these ladders, which would be particularly useful for getting up supplies. Speed was essential for this operation, and the small assault force was equipped for shock action of limited duration, with a minimum load of supplies and weapons. Dressed in fatigue uniform, each ranger carried a D-bar for rations, two grenades, and his weapon, normally the M1 rifle. A few of the men selected for going first up the ropes carried pistols or carbines. Heavier weapons were limited to four BARs and two light mortars per company. Ten thermite grenades for demolition were distributed within each company. Two supply boats, LCAs, would come in a few minutes after the assault wave with packs, extra rations, and ammunition, two 81-millimeter mortars, demolitions, and equipment for hauling supplies up the cliff. The tactical plan provided for companies E and F to assault on the east side of the point and company D on the west. Upon reaching the clifftop, each boat team had a series of specific objectives, beginning with the gun emplacements and other fortifications on the point. With these first objectives taken, most of the force was to push out immediately to the south, reach the coastal highway, which was a main communications lateral for German defenses of the Grand Camp Vierville coast, and hold a position controlling that road to the west until the arrival of the 116th Infantry from Vierville. If the assault at Omaha went according to schedule, the 116th would be at Pointe du Hoc before noon. Long before then, the main body of rangers, eight companies, should have followed in at the point to strengthen the foothold won by the initial assault. Lieutenant Colonel James E. Rudder, a rancher from Brady, Texas, was to take a force of 200 men, land on a shingled shelf under the face of a 100-foot cliff, and there destroy an enemy battery of coastal guns. General Omar Bradley, who commanded the operation against Omaha and Utah beaches, commented, No soldier in my command has ever been wished a more difficult task than that which befell the 34-year-old commander of this provisional ranger force. The group was made up of two battalions, the 2nd Rangers under direct command of Colonel Rutter and the 5th Rangers under Lieutenant Colonel Max F. Schneider. Three companies, D, E, and F of the 2nd Battalion, were to land from the sea at H hour and assault the cliff position at Pointe du Hoc. The main Ranger force, 5th Battalion and companies A and B of the 2nd, would wait offshore for the signal of success, then land at the point. The Ranger group would then move inland, cut the coastal highway connecting Grand Camp and Vierville, and await the arrival of the 116th Infantry from Vierville before pushing west toward Grand Camp and Maisie. At approximately 4.30 a.m. on the morning of June 6th, the Rangers set out for their objective, as the small flotilla of British assault landing craft loaded down with 225 men of the U.S. 2nd Ranger Battalion approached the cliffs of Normandy. A Ranger in one of the LCAs decided to stand up and have a look. My God, they're up there waiting for us, the young soldier said as he sat back down, readied his rifle, and prepared to hit the beach.
I got in the boat. When we pulled away, the water was rough and it was cold. And as we came in uh, closer and closer uh, to the shore, that's when we start seeing these 88s or what the hell they were flying over the top of us. You could see them, you know. Well, by that time, I had thrown up through my vomit bag. They gave us a bag, you know. And my job was to hook the grappling hook on the rockets to fire the rope up the cliff. When they told us to load up, you know the last thing I said to myself? I didn't say it to myself. I said it to the guy upstairs. I said, dear God, don't let me drown. I want to get in and do what I'm supposed to do. I'm starting to break down. As all of the assault craft came within range, the enemy at the top of the cliff opened up with concentrated small arms and machine gun fire. The zing of ricocheting bullets was in the air. Fifteen rangers were killed or wounded during the struggle through the rough surf and the dash across the heavily cratered narrow beach. The fighting, the bleeding, and the dying on the Normandy beaches had officially begun. I was the last man off of my boat. Bullets were zipping by, but uh, none hit me, thank God. I got a hold of the rope right in front of me and started up. And I got about two-thirds of the way up, and this hellacious explosion. The last thing that I saw was with all of this mud, dirt, and rock coming down the cliff. And then I, I was knocked out. The next thing that I recall was I was buried up to about my waist. And I looked up and, and I could see this German up there and uh, look, looking down like that. And he could have shot me right there if he wanted to, but I guess he figured I was gone, you know. So I looked around for my rifle. I had a Tommy gun, and it was some feet away, and I managed to squirm around and finally pull it out. And this fellow was still up there and looking around the other way, and I took a shot at him and pulled the trigger, and it snapped. My gun was clogged up with mud, and there I was. And I remember saying to myself, ain't this a hell of a note? Here I am in the damnedest war in history, and I don't have a gun. The D-Day Ranger force of two battalions, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel James Earl Rudder, a former football coach and rancher of Brady, Texas, had a special mission on the right flank of Omaha Beach. Three companies of the 2nd Ranger Battalion were to scale the 100-foot-high cliffs in an isolated action three miles west of the main landings and take a heavily fortified battery position at the Pointe du Hoc. One company of the same unit would land on Omaha's Charlie Beach and assault the enemy positions at Pointe de la Perse. If the assaulted Pointe du Hoc was successful by H hour plus 30 minutes, the 5th Ranger Battalion led by Colonel Schneider of Shenandoah, Idaho, and the remaining companies of the 2nd Battalion would land there. If not, 
Schneider's Rangers would land on Omaha and proceed with an overland attack on Pointe du Hoc. As the situation developed, the Rangers were to fight a battle completely different, with different objectives from the ones planned prior to D-Day. Ranger Captain Ralph E. Gorenson of Libertyville, Illinois, with the special mission at Pointe de la Perse, led the 68 men of Charlie Company across the sand, subjected to deadly, accurate enemy fire. Only 29 of his rangers made it. 39 were dead or about to die in the surf and on the beach. Here's one for Ripley, Captain Gorenson said to one of the ranger officers sometime later. I found nine slugs and bullet holes in my gear and clothing. Didn't get a scratch. Yet so many around us have died. British destroyers eventually took care of the enemy installations at the Pointe de la Perse, but in spite of the severe losses, the remaining handful of Gorenson's rangers went on to destroy a well-defended enemy fortification, inflicting many casualties. The first thing about the beach that you notice is there are dead men all over it. And the few that are still quivering are bleeding badly. There are a whole pile, and I actually literally mean a pile of terrified men leaning up against the seawall, one on top of another, not beside each other, but on top of one another, trying to get into the cover there. You see puffs of dust as machine gun bullets and rifle bullets are hitting in your area. You hear the smack of bullets as they hit into the breakwaters, and you can hear them and hear them go whang off and as they ricochet, but you can also hear that thump as they hit a rock and scatter fragments of rocks all over the place. You would hear the artillery exploding behind you as they hit the boats on the waterline, the shoreline, and the rifle fire and the uh, machine gun fire was just incessant as it cracked over your heads, as it hit into the breakwaters, as it chewed up the turf, as it banged into the road next to us. And uh, it was one horrible noise after another with a lot of little nasty noises in between. And of course, when the artillery would hit near you, the whole ground would shake. You'd have dust and fragments and things like that come and litter around you. No, it, it was a, a scene from hell. According to intelligence, the German fortifications at Pointe du Hoc contained the enemy's biggest guns, a battery of six 155-millimeter howitzers of French make. This artillery, with a range of 2,500 feet, posed a great threat to the troops on both of the American beaches and had to be knocked out by H-hour at 6.30 a.m. if the landing were to succeed with a minimum of losses. Lieutenant Colonel Rudder, who was later to become the president of Texas A&M University at College Station, Texas, and a major general, was sure he had the men to do the job. Eighteen U.S. bombers dropped their bomb loads minutes before the Rangers hit the beach, driving the enemy underground and momentarily disrupting communications. The assault itself was not unlike a medieval attack on the ramparts of a besieged castle. When D Company platoon leader Lieutenant George F. Kirchniff of Baltimore, Maryland, got his first close-up look at the cliffs and heard the rattle of the enemy machine guns overhead, his immediate thought was, This whole thing is just one great big mistake. We'll never make it. 
but the Rangers did make it. It was a wild and frenzied scene as the men of Dog, Easy, and Fox companies scaled the cliffs of Pont du Hoc. They accomplished this very difficult task by means of rocket-fired rope and rope ladders anchored to the top of the cliff by grappling hooks. The U.S. destroyer Satterley saw the enemy firing from positions along the edge of the cliffs and moved in for close support fire. Ropes were cut, hurling rangers back down to the beach. They got up and found other ropes to climb. Hand grenades were dropped on their heads. They continued to climb. As our ramp went down, I'm the first one off the landing craft. And as I did, I was shot through the side, above my hip, through the muscle on the right side. Fortunately for me, uh, my side was sore and hurt from the shot, but it didn't hit anything important. Bob, my radio man, was next to me on his rope, and we're struggling and about to make the top when Bob says to me, Len, Len, can you help me? And I said, what's wrong? He said, I don't have an ounce of strength left. I can't make it. And it was only about a foot or two to the top of the cliff. And I said, Bob, now that you mention it, I don't think I have an ounce of strength left either uh, to make it, but you gotta hold on. I happened to see Leonard Rubin. He was a very husky fella, and I yelled to him, Rube, Rube, get over there. And uh, I said, Bob can't make it to the top. He's out of strength. Can you help him? With that, Rube throws down his weapon, reaches over, grabs Bob, and he, he is so powerful, my man. He jerked Bob up over the cliff, slung him over, and Bob's going through the air. Uh, in the meantime, I've gained enough strength to get up and I'm standing up there with my submachine gun protecting Bob and Rube and the Germans and Rangers are being shot all around us. As we rushed them, we got to the gun positions that we were assigned and there were no guns. And what was there was these phony poles making it look from the air as if the guns were in those positions. I told my platoon sergeant, Jack Hume, you come with me. And I said, you're not going to go find those guns. they got to be here. Sergeant Hayward A. Roby, an E Company BAR man, and a couple of other rangers reached the top in less than five minutes. Roby saw a group of the enemy to his right throwing grenades over a cliff. From a shallow niche at the cliff's edge, he sprayed the grenade throwers with 40 or 50 rounds of fast fire. Three of the enemy dropped, and the rest disappeared into shelters. Rangers in larger numbers were now scrambling over the cratered edge of the cliff, driving the enemy back in a determined effort to reach and destroy the main objectives, the 155-millimeter guns. As Ranger groups reached their appointed gun emplacements, they were shocked and surprised to find empty casements, and almost all of the concrete positions completely pulverized. The big guns were strangely no place to be found. Radio communications in these early stages of the battle were ineffective. A communications team still down on the beach made repeated attempts without success to reach the 5th Ranger Battalion. Due to the delayed landing at Pont du Hoc, Schneider's Rangers were already landing as prearranged on Omaha Beach, where a very much bigger battle was raging, and, as it turned out, a place where combat troops were badly needed. Therefore, the Rangers at the Hoc had to fight on alone. The 5th Rangers would take part in unexpected battles and would later be credited with leading the way on Omaha Beach. The landing on Omaha Beach was portrayed in the movie Saving Private Ryan.
while the Rangers were mopping up at the point. A patrol led by D Company's 1st Sergeant Leonard G. Lommel of Toms River, New Jersey, discovered the missing French 155s in an apple orchard, cleverly camouflaged and sighted for fire on either of the two beaches. Lommel and his men destroyed the guns with thermite grenades and thus prevented untold casualties on both Utah and Omaha beaches. Lieutenant Colonel Rudder now instructed the radio team to send the following message. Located Point du Hoc. Mission accomplished. Need ammunition and reinforcements. Many casualties. About two hours later, a brief message was received from Major General Clarence R. Hubner, commander of the 1st Infantry Division, which read as follows. Sorry, no reinforcements available. All Ranger forces have landed. Rudder's Rangers could not now expect any help from ground forces landing three to four miles away, but they did have destroyers just offshore that were ready, willing, and able to lend support. Communications with the destroyer Satterley was established via means of a signal lamp by Lieutenant James Eichner, the Rangers' communications officer. When radio contact was made, radio man Lou Lisko of Natrona Heights, PA, asked what Satterley's radio call sign would be. The radio operator on board replied, Just call a slugger. For the next 48 hours, the destroyer Satterley was to live up to its radio code name. The destroyer fired on every target designated by the Rangers and also some targets it discovered on its own. Despite the many enemy artillery shells exploding very close to the Satterley and other destroyers, they did not retreat but stayed and slugged it out with the enemy. The Rangers could not have accomplished their mission and survived without this support. The battle on Point du Hoc was fought actually by two main Ranger groups, the force that advanced beyond and cut the coastal highway, this group also found and destroyed the missing guns, and the rangers who stayed to form a defensive perimeter near the fortified area of the point itself. Both groups were to fight off with the help of naval bombardment, a series of counterattacks, and were to take part in countless skirmishes designed to drive the rangers back into the sea. Private First Class William Cruz, a D Company rifleman, was the only man of a group of 11 to return from an attack on an anti-aircraft position located on the extreme right flank of the perimeter. F Company's commander, Captain Otto Big Stoop Masny of Pewaukee, Wisconsin, was wounded in a firefight near gun position N6. He died later aboard ship. Every man in his group of about 10 had been wounded by enemy small arms fire, including four killed. A sniper's bullet found its mark and killed Sergeant Jack Richards of F Company, an outstanding high school football player from Lou Lisco's hometown. And so it went with other groups of Zangers continuing the attack, determined to accomplish their mission and stay alive. Sergeant Elrod Petty of Cahuto, Georgia, an F Company BAR man, accounted for 30 of the enemy single-handedly in one isolated action. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at the medical section with the Ranger Assault Force, under the command of Captain Walter E. Block, M.D., of Chicago, Illinois, had a very busy day. They did a heroic job of taking care of the wounded, although they themselves were constantly under enemy fire and suffered a number of wounded among their own ranks. In spite of the many casualties suffered, and thanks to the great naval support fire, the Rangers survived the fighting on D-Day and tenaciously held fast. 
D-Day plus one found the Rangers in defensive positions, fighting off more attacks and awaiting the arrival of the rescue forces from Omaha Beach. An enemy machine gun position occupied by a number of German riflemen, located at the extreme left flank of the perimeter, was a particularly annoying problem ever since the H-hour landing. The two attempts by Fox Company men had resulted in casualties and failed to eliminate the machine gun nest. The Rangers were too short-handed to take further action, so a message was sent to higher command via a destroyer radio explaining the predicament. During the late afternoon of D-plus-1, Rangers stood up and cheered as U.S. fighter bombers attacked and obliterated the enemy gun position. Beautiful, right on target, a bullseye, shouted Sergeant Robert G. Uso of Rockville, Maryland, who was wounded earlier in a three-man ground attack on this position. He had crawled to within 20 yards of the enemy, but was shot through the arm by a German rifleman as he half-raised to throw a hand grenade into the machine gun nest. He spent the next day fighting with one arm in a sling. Suddenly, friendly planes now appeared to bomb and strafe Pointe du Hoc. Apparently, the Air Corps had been erroneously informed that the Rangers had been wiped out. The squadron leader, using good judgment, came down to treetop level for a better look at his designated target. Many of the rangers on the bomb-cratered terrain stood up and frantically waved their arms, helmets, and field jackets. One ranger, under fire, spread out on the torn earth an American flag for more positive identification. Look, he sees us. He's waving back at us, a ranger shouted. He knows now that we're friendly troops down here. The low-flying squadron leader, satisfied that U.S. troops were still fighting for possession of this little corner of France, joined the other pilots at the higher altitude and headed back across the channel. The tiny ranger beachhead at Pointe du Hoc was in an almost constant state of siege. It was actually after the early destructions of the big guns that most of the fighting on this little piece of French rock took place. Right up to the time of the relief on D-plus-2 by advancing troops from Omaha Beach, the rangers continued to fight for their survival. Colonel Rudder had gone up top at 0745 and established his command post in a crater between the cliff and a destroyed anti-aircraft gun emplacement. Most of the assault parties had left the fortified area on their several missions, and Colonel Rudder could only wait for reports. Observation in the churned-up wasteland left by the bombardment was very limited, and for the moment there was little he could do to exercise control. However, there was some work to do near at hand, as the enemy gave disturbing signs of reviving his resistance close to the point. Enemy snipers were active, some of them operating inside the fortified area, and steps were immediately taken to eradicate them. Some of the last parties up the cliff, together with headquarters personnel, were sent out to hunt them down. These efforts, repeated many times, were never entirely successful. Through the rest of D-Day, the CP and the whole point area were harassed by snipers who came out of tunnels and trenches to find plenty of cover in the cratered debris. Patrols combed over the maze of underground positions, but it seemed impossible to clean them out with the small force available. At no time were the snipers numerous, and there were periods when the rangers could move in the open with impunity anywhere on the point. But these intervals of calm would be broken at any time by scattered small arms fire from every direction, or by bursts of automatic fire from the German anti-aircraft position 300 yards west on the edge of the cliff. Colonel Rudder sustained a thigh wound from this fire during the morning. Within a half hour after Colonel Rudder's arrival on top, a first attempt to knock out this western strong point had ended with the destruction of Sergeant Spleen's small attacking force. This made it clear that the anti-aircraft position was the main center of enemy resistance near the point and the most dangerous because it afforded a base either for attacking to the ranger's foothold on the point or for efforts to cut off the parties that had gone inland. 
Captain Masney, after helping to set up Company F positions on the left flank, was given the mission of forming a perimeter defense for the command post, using headquarters personnel and any rangers who had not gone inland. As he was organizing this defense, fire opened up again from the anti-aircraft position. Like Sergeant Spleen earlier, Masney collected the nearest men at hand and went out to attack. Starting with eight men, the group picked up a few more rangers as it went through the fortified area toward the exit road, planning to swing west. Among the additions was a mortar section from LCA-722. Much earlier, this mortar had been set up to deliver supporting fire for the Company E group moving inland under Lieutenant LaPre. Staff Sergeant Miller W. Hayden had accompanied this group, taking with him a sound power phone and a half a mile of wire. No calls for fire had come, and communication had been broken off, so the mortar section decided to move inland and join Hayden. Before they had gone far, they were recalled for support of Masney's group, which also had a 30 caliber machine gun taken off a DUKW, or six-wheeled amphibious vehicle. Masney's force turned west where the exit road met the remains of a lane that led toward the enemy's strong point. They had made only 100 yards progress when rifle, machine gun, and mortar fire opened up from their left flank as well as from the strong point. Scattered among craters, the rangers started a firefight. The mortar set up in a hole about 50 yards to the rear of the rifleman where Masney directed its fire. When a white flag showed over the German emplacement, the men with Masney were wary and stayed undercover. But two rangers on the right of the skirmish line, near gun position number six, stood up in the open. Masney's yell of warning was too late to save them from a burst of machine gun bullets, and the firefight resumed. German artillery came into action from somewhere inland. The first rounds were over. The next rounds began to creep back until they bracketed the hedgerow-marked lane, which was the axis of the ranger's attack. There the fire held, right on the lane. His attack was smashed in short order. Four men were killed, and nearly every ranger in the group was hit. Masney, wounded in the arm, shouted, Withdraw every man for himself, after the second burst, and the remnants crawled back to the exit road and over to the CP, with snipers killing two more on the way. All its ammunition shot away. The mortar was abandoned at its firing position. That was the last effort of the day to assault the anti-aircraft emplacement. The two ill-fated attempts had cost 15 to 20 casualties. Several attempts were made to knock out the anti-aircraft position by naval fire, with the Satterley expending many rounds in futile bombardment. The position was just too far from the edge of the cliff to be blasted off by undercutting fire. Due to communications breakdowns, Colonel Rudder was in complete ignorance of the process of the great assault at Omaha Beach, for the naval vessels, if they had any information, did not send it to the point. Keep in mind that the outcome of D-Day and the liberation of France was never considered a slam dunk. The military might of Germany at that time was unparalleled. The greatest fear that the Allies had was that this invasion would be pushed back into the sea. Many saw the fate of the free world hanging in the balance in the D-Day invasion. Colonel Rudder and Captain Block were concerned over the problem of caring for the considerable number of wounded, many of whom needed to be evacuated. At 1350, by signal light communication, the destroyer Barton was asked to send in a boat to take off the casualties. At 1430 hours, a small motorboat from the Barton made the attempt, towing a rubber boat astern. Enemy machine gun fire from along the cliffs east of Pointe du Hoc harassed the Barton's motorboat, wounding one of the crew and preventing a landing. Block had to leave several of the seriously wounded rangers overnight on the beach in a cave at the base of the cliff. 
The Germans made two counterattacks against the point during the afternoon of the first day, both of them hitting Lieutenant Wince's force from south and west. The first attack came over the fields that stretched toward St. Pierre du Mont, where Lieutenant Wince's rangers spotted riflemen coming through the craters with at least one machine gun section. When the enemy reached the hedgerow one field south of Wince's line, they set up the machine gun and started a firefight that went on for an hour. Some artillery and mortar fire supported the effort, but most of the enemy shells went over into the point area. Company F had a mortar in position, but it was short of ammunition and held its fire. They had no BARs on the flank facing the attack, and naval fire could not be called on against the Germans so close to the Ranger lines. The attack was met and stopped by well-sustained rifle fire. After a time, the German fire weakened and men could be seen drifting back. Wentz's force sustained no casualties. The second German counterattack came shortly after 1600 hours and was much more dangerous. It hit the right end of Company F's thin line. Two BARs as well as the motor section were on this wing, but only a few riflemen, and the right flank was in the air. Moving near the exit road, the Germans were close in on this flank before they were observed. Staff Sergeant Herman E. Stein and PFC Cloyce Manning were near gun position number one, changing craters after a close burst of enemy shells when they saw a dozen Germans with a machine gun, almost due west and moving fast toward the point. About the same time, Staff Sergeant Eugene Elder at the mortar spotted some enemy to the south, close by and crawling to the craters. Sergeant Stein opened with surprise fire from his BAR at 40 yards, hit a couple of men in the group to the west, and scared the others into a short withdrawal. This check disorganized the attack for a few valuable moments. When the Germans rallied, their firing line extended well beyond Company F's flank, but their fire was high and wild. The few rangers on that wing took hurried measures to meet the danger. Stein sent a message over to the mortar position, warning of the enemy's location, and eight riflemen came over from the left to help defend against any thrust behind Company F and onto the point. With Sergeant Murrell F. Stinnett observing and relaying corrections by call to Sergeant Elder, the ranger's mortar opened at 60-yard range. The first shells burst right on the advanced group of enemy, driving them out of their holes into a hasty withdrawal. Shifting its fire a little south, the mortar flushed another German party who suffered casualties from the BARs as they ran for cover. That was the end of an attack that had got in very close to the point and threatened to cut off Winch's group. Quick reaction by the rangers and very rapid and accurate mortar fire had knocked the enemy off balance and given them no time to recover. The relief for the forces at Poitou Hoc, the 5th Ranger Battalion and the 116th Infantry Regiment of the 29th Division arrived about noon on that second day. Their arrival forced the enemy to retreat westward toward Grand Camp Lebain, where that evening another major battle would be fought. For the first time since H. Hour, the survivors of the battle at Pointe du Hoc could breathe easily. Only 90 of the original 225 rangers who had landed there two days earlier were now able to bear arms. Some of the 90 with comparatively lesser wounds were also listed as casualties, including Lieutenant Colonel Rudder. Although wounded twice, he refused to be evacuated, remaining with his men in the continuing effort to expand the beachhead. The 2nd Ranger Battalion in the D-Day assault landed approximately 450 men on the Normandy beaches. 77 were killed in action, 158 wounded, and 38 missing, a casualty rate of around 60%. The survivors of Pointe du Hoc moved out to join other troops and to take part in still other battles that were yet to be fought before Hitler's armies could finally and totally be defeated. 
General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of all Allied forces in the Normandy assault, once said, I had always attached great importance to the liquidation of the Pont du Hoc gun battery. During a nostalgic post-war visit to the same area, the general said, It took guts to get up those cliffs that day. Today, the battle-scarred Pont du Hoc remains exactly as the rangers left it on the afternoon of 8th of June, 1944. The only addition is a large stone monument erected in memorial tribute to the men who fought and died there. The monument was a project of a grateful and dedicated group of Frenchmen known as the Comité de la Pointe du Hoc. It was through their efforts and the generosity of the government of France that this sacred corner of French soil was placed in perpetuity under the care of the American Battle Monuments Commission, which maintains American military cemeteries and memorials on foreign soil. Today, less than 70 years since D-Day, tens of thousands of fans cheer football games and idolize their sport heroes. Famous musicians and actors are worshipped. And pop culture continues to magnify and extol the deeds and everyday lives of people who, for one reason or another, are getting their 15 minutes of fame. Very few of those cheering take a moment to hold their hands over their hearts when the national anthem is played. That anthem as well as our American flag, is the symbol of American freedom and the safety of the free world from tyrants and dictators. The freedom that hundreds of thousands of American soldiers have paid the ultimate price for. The real heroes are our American service men and women and the men and women of the free world who have fought and continue to fight tyranny. These are the real heroes. The next time you honor our flag, take a moment to recall the boys of Ponduac. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at www.1001storiespodcast.com and join in on the discussion at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.